we're jumping into the text, uh, I do want to just throw a few announcements uh, your way. If you, you see a barrel is up here, uh, that's not for Liberia this time. Uh, it is for Lawton School. So Larry's been contacting Lawton School and uh, just kind of lining up some ways that we can serve them. And the foremost way is uh, getting backpacks and school supplies. There's actually a list of the school supplies that are needed on the ground for Lawton. And so we want to just show them mercy uh, in a simple way like that with the aim and the hope to just kind of build an ongoing relationship both with um, you know, the, the teachers, the administration there, uh, as well as the, the students and their parents. So it's over just seven, a... Over 700 families. Wow, represented. Yeah. In, in, yeah. And they're just down the block. <laughs> yeah. So it's a, a wonderful... And by the way, many of, many of the kids that go to Lawton uh, have been connected over the last few years with our you know, youth group and whatnot. And so uh, every, every day, apart from kind of the COVID season, you know, three o'clock hits and there's this kind of mass of people coming up uh, Benner Street here um, and great opportunities to just connect with some of the kids that are there, especially if we're out playing uh, in the back parking lot. Uh, so you can be begin to bring in some of those uh, supplies, and that'll serve us to show some mercy uh, to Lawton School. Also then, a few other things. VBS is coming up. It's going to be here sooner uh, than we know. Uh, there is, I think food is done with. Caitlin's been working on that. Awesome. Uh, the other thing is we're going to need some bedding. Uh, to be brought in. We do have some leftover stuff from the previous years, so we're going to be pulling that down and uh, getting you more of a detailed list of the things that we need. But it'll involve like sheets and pillows for 17 people and maybe a few air mattresses to bring in. We do have some leftovers from previous years, so we'll be getting specifics out uh, this week. All right, you guys ready to jump into it this morning? I'm kind of excited to uh, to jump into it uh, because I want to do it like a, a different style, not just go off the manuscript and, you know, preachy, preachy, but let's kind of, here it is, right? Here's Revelation 13. Uh, so we're, we're going to do a little bit of drawing and visualize what actually is happening in the text. And once again, uh, when it comes to Revelation, not, not all of it is intended to be seen like this. Uh, it, it's a bouquet of images that we are given, a parade of images, as some scholars would say, uh, that really don't make sense once you draw them out. But they are to capture your attention. They, they didn't have movies back then, right? They did have theater and that kind of stuff. Um, and oftentimes, strange imagery would be utilized, especially with, within the first century uh, in, in theater. Uh, and, and yet... Uh, one of the things that we just have to keep in mind is that this imagery is to be provocative. And ultimately, it's not for us, again, just kind of laying some guardrails, it's not for us to take our tabloids and newspapers and interject it into the text when you come to this weird stuff. Uh, the scriptures will interpret scripture, right? So we, when we don't know what this means, we need to ask scripture, seek uh, to find the answers within scripture. Uh, so Revelation 13, um, just before I read it, I just want to review kind of where we've been. Uh, if you remember, the book of Revelation is broken up into three cycles of seven. So you have these repeated or patterns of 
judgments. So you have the seal judgments. And as we went through the seal judgments, we had the first six, and then there was this interlude. Like John stops and pauses. And he pauses ultimately to answer a question, who can stand? And remember, it was this moment of encouragement. While all this judgment and terrible stuff is going on, Paul or uh, John backs away, and he, he says, hey, I'm, I'm going to encourage the church. Who can stand? The church can stand as they follow Jesus. Through all the tribulation, distress, they can stand through all of this. Why? Because they follow the Lamb who has lived and died and been raised again. So that's John's way of just pausing in the midst of all the chaos to encourage the church. He'll do the same thing that in the trumpets. Uh, the trumpet judgments are, have been blasted. And once again, you, as we read it, it's like, oh my goodness, here, here's more of this chaos, here's more corruption, here's more judgment, here's more tribulation. But what does John do? But he gives us another little interlude. He slows down. And again, to encourage the church, there are two witnesses, two olive trees, and all of that symbolizes God's people. And yes, they go through very difficult times. I'm seeing a tattoo. I like it. Sorry. <laughs> this, is, this is what happens when you're not going off a manuscript, right? You're seeing everything happening out here. Um, but this is what um, John does. He slows down and he encourages the church. Although you will go through tribulation, even the two witnesses dying, they're raised again. They overcome. And so once again, this is just encouragement. John is slowing down to give encouragement. And now we have finished up with the trumpet seven, and we're in now what is called really the, the hinge point of the whole book of Revelation. Uh, because what John is doing is he's recapping the storyline of the Bible, right? So you have in chapter 12 this woman who's pregnant. And again, the imagery is strange, but we begin to see, oh, the woman is Israel, and she has a child, the promised one, Jesus, and of course, Satan is there, ready to devour the child, but the child then is carried away to God. It's language of Christ's ascension. Yes, he lives, dies, is raised again, ascends to, to his father, uh, but in that period, like, the devil doesn't get what he's attempting to get. Actually, in consuming the child and getting the child, he actually is mortally wounded, if you will. He is undone by the work of the child. And then what we have is the woman goes into the wilderness and, and she's preserved in the wilderness for uh, some time, her and her offspring. Again, the woman and her offspring representing the age of the church. But now Satan knows he's been, in some sense, defeated and so he comes after the church, right? And, and so there's a woe on all that is in the sea and on the earth. Woe to them, for Satan has come down to you. He knows his time is short, and he's going to terrorize God's people. As we turn to chapter 13, the question is, how is he going to do that? What are the devil's tactics? How is he going to come against the church? Revelation 13. Let's read it. John says, Verse 1, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea. He had ten horns, seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. 
One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven, a reference to God's people. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose names has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by, by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. Strange. So that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who, under, who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Dun, 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 dun. There it is. What a text to work from uh, this morning. We got beasts. We got the mark of the beast to deal with. Uh, plenty of things to talk through. But it is amazing. As you dive into the imagery and see the hyperlinks of the imagery that point us back to the Old Testament, it becomes just beautiful truth that God has given to the church, again, to help us endure through great tribulations here and now. The way I want to begin is just by saying this, that Satan is okay for you to have a good life. Do you know that? Satan is okay with you having a good and profitable life in this world. He'll give you the things, your hopes and dreams that you, you might want. He, he is totally okay with that. He's okay with you being a bit religious, reading your Bible, even coming to church, thinking, okay, I'm... I'm doing all right for myself. He, he's okay with your therapy and your counseling actually working out where you have troubles within your own heart and life. He's, he's cool with that all just kind of working out and being good and profitable for you. Satan is cool with that. What he does not want is for you to be captivated by the glory of Christ. 
He will give you what is good and profitable in this world to keep you from the life, the life, the life that is in the Lamb. And so what Satan does when it comes to the church is he has kind of wartime tactics that he brings against the church to keep them from the glory of Christ. Keep them from living out the life that we have been given in Christ. He comes against us in what chapter 13 does. It gives us a window kind of into the war room of the enemy, Satan. Like we get to walk into the room in some sense and see the plans of the enemy laid out on the table. Chapter 13 is, is kind of his wartime tactics. We get to walk in and see how the enemy is going to come against us the church, to keep us from seeing the glory of Christ, to confuse people from actually walking out the life that they have in Christ. We get to see kind of the wartime plan of the enemy, his tactics against us. So what we'll see is that both of these beasts, yes, yeah, sorry, by the way, sorry for the heat. Uh, so our, our units went down this past week, so this week they should be up and running for next week. So just so you know. Uh, Sorry, you have to endure a little bit. Um, but what we have then within this text is two beasts that demonstrate two tactics of the enemy that he is coming against the church. So uh, let's just jump into this and have Revelation 13 before you because we're going to dialogue a little bit. All right, uh, This is not just going to be manuscript driven. Uh, it's going to be you driven. Uh, so have Revelation 13 before you. As Revelation 13 opens up, what is happening? What do we see first? All right, we have a beast. Where is he coming from? All right, the sea. When it comes to this idea of the sea, um, we could go back to Isaiah 57, for instance. And in Isaiah 57, um, sinners are referred to as a tumultuous sea. It's, it's kind of the place of darkness. It's the godless place. It's the place apart from, from God. It's where sinners dwell. Uh, or when we get to the Gospels and we have that interaction between uh, Jesus and Legion, right? It's the demoniac story. And Legion is cast out of the man and goes into the pigs. But where do the pigs go? Into the sea. Uh, and it's to demonstrate the fact that that's where they belong. They belong symbolically in this place of chaos, right? So they're sent to the abyss, if you will. The abyss and the sea are kind of interchangeable ideas within Scripture. Um, ultimately, by the time we get to the end of Revelation, uh, I believe it's Revelation 19, the sea is no more. The chaos, the, the demonic influence, the, the way of sinners is no more. It's done away with when Jesus finally makes all things new again. So it's out of this place, the sea, that now this beast is arising. And how is the beast described? Just shout it out. He's got diadems, essentially. All right, he's got the diadems, right? Yep. What else? Horns, how many? Ah, ten. All right, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. A lot of horns. 
He's unstoppable. All right. What, what, what are the descriptions? He's got horns. What else does he have? All right. A what? All right. He's like a leopard. He's got, he's got a body like a leopard. Feet like a bear. There they are, coming out. What else? Seven heads. Okay. This is going to look like goiters coming out of his... Uh, all right, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. All right, so these are not happy heads, right? Uh, what else? A mouth like a what? Uh, or a lion? Yeah, yep, a mouth like a lion. What in the world? Right? You should be, okay, this, the... It, does, it doesn't make any sense to our Western brains why this would all be kind of packed together. But once again, like Revelation does, it's hyperlinks. All these different images are actually recognized somewhere else in Scripture. Daniel chapter 7. Now remember the story of Daniel. It's the time of Babylon. Daniel and his buddies are taken captive, exiled to Babylon. As they go to Babylon, um, eventually there's this king, Nebuchadnezzar. Remember his story? Nebuchadnezzar is boasting in just how great his kingdom is. And in, in this moment of boasting in, in this kingdom and in his kingliness, uh, incredible things happen. He himself is cursed for a time. He becomes a what? A beast, <laughs> right? And, and then just a few chapters later, Daniel, Daniel 7, he's having these visions of these other beasts. And where are they coming from? They're arising from the sea. And, and one is like a, a bear, and one is like a leopard, and one is like a, a lion. And so you have all this similar imagery at work in Daniel chapter 7. But Daniel tips us off because he's curious. Like, what in the world am I seeing? And so, like, the narrator, whether that's an angel or something, comes, comes to Daniel and he's like, hey, you don't know what's going on here? Let me tell you what's going on here. The imagery of these four different beasts, one like a lion, one like a leopard, one, one like a bear, etc., uh, they, they represent kingdoms. And so what we come to find out in Daniel's story is, sure enough, there are these beastly, self-exalting, oppressive kingdoms that come through the timeline of history, Babylon being one, Medo-Persia conquering then Babylon, and then you have Greece conquering them, and then you eventually have Rome, which leads us up to the day of John. John's living now under this Roman oppression, the Christians being persecuted quite severely. So the idea is this, is that this is like something of a super beast. It takes on all the, characteristic, all the characteristics of these previous beasts, and, and, and because those previous beasts are kingdoms, they're political entities, political and religious entities, now what we have is something of a super beast, a super political religious entity that is going to be at work within the world. What is this beast doing? Hmm. 
Usurping the authority of Christ. Yes. By whose authority? By his. Now, does the, does the, this super beast, this unique beast kind of, uh, does he get his authority from himself? No. There is, there is a dragon behind all of this, right? Who's the dragon? Satan. In the previous chapter, we have a pretty straightforward explanation that this ancient serpent, this dragon, is the devil, the one who is called Satan, Satan, right? And it's the devil, then, that is inspiring this work of the beast, right? And so you have this incredible political religious entity, and again, by the authority that's invested by it, uh, to it, from the, the serpent, what does he begin to do? Verse 5, and we'll come back in a second to the previous verses there. He blasphemes. So he has a mouth that is running. Now, when it comes to blasphemy, he is not just blaspheming God, saying, oh, God's not true, God's not right. He's actually referring to himself in some way as a deity. He's blaspheming by saying, God's not real, I am real. Trust in me. I can care for you. I can do what's necessary. What else does he do? Verse. Okay, he's exercising authority. Verse 7 then, he's making war. So the two things that he is doing is he's blaspheming God. He's proclaiming something of his own divinity, but then he's now targeting the saints who would reject his divinity and bringing persecution against them. This would have been familiar in John's day. I mean, first century craziness. You know, you, you look at Domitian and Nero and these guys, and they were all outright just killing, slaughtering the Christians, right? And so what we have here is, a, again, a political religious entity that is blaspheming and then persecuting the Christians. Now, one of the things that we recognize is that on one hand, there's authority given to this super beast from the dragon, right? Um, and part of the authority that's represented there is in the fact that he has these strange horns and these heads. The dragon is actually described in the previous chapter as having ten horns and seven heads. In other words, it's to demonstrate, horns are always to demonstrate power particularly political power. The heads emphasizing something of influence. Seven being that comprehensive number. Ten being another comprehensive number. It's this beast that is going to have something of comprehensive power and influence politically throughout the world. As animated by the dragon. As given authority by the dragon. He images, if you will, the dragon. He images the dragon, but he imitates someone. What happens to him? Verse 3. He 
Yes, there's a mortal wound that takes place. One of the heads is wounded as you get further into, uh, I believe it's 14, we're actually told that a sword struck one of the heads and it should have died. And actually, as you get into the, the, the Greek, you begin to say, oh, that, this is language very similar to that of Christ. As Christ died, and the same language, resurrection language is being used to describe this beast that in some way he's, he's imaging the dragon, but he's imitating Christ. He's actually coming to say, no, I got, a no, I got a better narrative to prove to you. Like you have this Christ figure, you don't need to listen to him, listen to me, look what I've done. He's nothing, he's in the past. Here's what I've done, here's what I've accomplished before your eyes. The resurrected one. This is the beast. He images the dragon, but he imitates Christ. And in his imitation, what he's doing is setting forth a political and religious agenda that would solicit worship. And any who would reject that worship are persecuted, slain, and condemned. You know. So this is the first tactic, if you will, of the enemy. It's outright oppression. Am I spelling it right? And persecution. In other words, what John is saying to the church, we're walking into kind of the war room of the enemy. We're seeing the plans rolled out in front of us. And John's saying, church, be ready. You are going to suffer under this political and religious regime. There will be outright oppression and persecution for following Christ. It will be the way of the church. Now, how long, this is a little dicey, but how long does this beast, is he at play? Is that later on? 42 months. All right, so we have this 42 months timeline. You've seen that already. James covered some of this. But it'll also be referred to as 1,260 days or three and a half years. This is all language, again, from Daniel, and, and, and many folks believe that then these are timelines within the tribulation, a tribulation that the church will be saved from. And there's credibility to some of that. If you, if you come from a kind of a rapture theology, you know, we're going to be, the church is going to be taken out before this tribulation happens. All of this stuff happens apart from us. As I study Revelation, I can't quite see that. I see God's people going through these tribulation times and even recognizing that this probably isn't just um, a singular person or a singular entity that is yet to come, but a pattern of hardship, oppression, and persecution that will be brought upon the church over time. 42 months, even as the previous chapter would refer to, is is the time of the church. I, I see it as being the church age, if you will. That there is going to be a pattern of persecution and oppression throughout the world, and it will intensify over time, perhaps then leading to a particular point in time where there is a particular person and particular regimes that he wields to see persecution and oppression brought globally to Christians. What we know is that Christians are going to have, have a hard go of it. 
when it comes down to it. Satan's coming after us. One of his tactics will be through political and religious means to oppress and persecute God's people. All right? So that's one of his tactics. Let's jump to the second beast. Uh, verse 11. Where does the beast come from? From what? All right, so this beast comes from the sea, the second one. Sec All right, so now the second beast is rising from the earth. And it has how many horns? Okay, two horns. The language is, is like this. We went on vacation, you know, um, uh, to Wisconsin, where my folks are at right now, and, and uh, for whatever reason, they had this herd of goats tossed into this, like, backwoods to cut down the overgrowth that was there. And so you, you go up to these little guys, and they're just the cutest. The, they remind me of drunken sailors, you know, the way they just kind of bounce around. And, you know, they're just these tiny little goats with these little, you know, stubby horns sticking out of their head. They're cute as can be. I just want to grab, grab one, take it home kind of a thing because they're so cool. Um, that's what's being described. One of those cuddly, like ch a, a child's pet. Like, let's, let's, have, let's do a hobby farm and let's get a bunch of little cute little goats. That, that's the idea that's being communicated here. He is like a lamb. He is not a threat whatsoever. He comes across as one who's just kind of innocent, present, but not there to kind of create any kind of destruction. But there's a contrast. He's seemingly innocent. He's seemingly a child's pet until he does what? Speaks. And when he speaks, he speaks like a dragon. Right? And where does his authority come from? Anybody? Where, where does this beast's authority come from? From the dragon. Once again, from the dragon. The dragon is animate. Now, maybe you sit back and you say, wait, wait, wait. Wasn't Satan kind of like undone? Does he really have this kind of rule and reign throughout the earth? Can he do these things? And the answer is yes. Just as Peter would warn us, he's a roaring lion. He's still a threat. He's been undone, but he's still a threat to us. So open your eyes, church, to the reality that's happening. The dragon is at work. Satan's at work. The lion is at work. And he will take you down. Again, through one of two tactics, more generally speaking, oppression and persecution. Or, as this beast images, right, through deception or seduction. Tactic one, tactic two. It's either going to be all outright persecution, you're going to be slain for what you believe in, following Jesus, or there's going to be an outworking of deception and seduction from keep you, to keep you from truly living out the life that is yours in Christ. Now, let's just look at the, the further tactics of this particular beast. What does he begin to do? He's performing great signs. He, he's another, in, in a sense, 
imitator of Christ. He's an imitator of God's people. Uh, and in particular, what kind of sign does he perform? Branding fire. Where, where does that remind, what does that remind you of in the biblical storyline? All right, so on one hand, the plagues. Pentecost. Ooh, interesting. Man, I, okay, I didn't even think of that one. Pentecost. Who else? Old Testament figure? Mount Carmel. All right, Elijah. Yeah. So Elijah's calling down fire really to prove the reality of Yahweh God against the, the gods of the age, right? Of the day. And so what this guy is doing, he's imitating that. Oh, yeah, you know, you guys have a history of following Yahweh and Yahweh doing signs and wonders through you. It, it, it goes back kind of to the Exodus time where Moses is going in and he and Aaron and actually the magicians begin to imitate the works that they are doing, trying to combat something of uh, the power and truth of, of God. So here what we have is, once again, an imitator, but he, he's, he's soft and cuddly. He's nothing to worry about. Just take it easy, but he has a voice that comes with power and with authority, and he begins to do signs that imitate something of Christ and his people throughout the storyline, to the point where you're saying, hey, uh, this is a pretty good guy. He's powerful. He, he's cuddly. He's not a threat to me. And he seems to speak with words of wisdom. It's deception that's being done. Now, what else does he do? There's a strange thing that happens next. That he makes, he deceives the people to make an image of the beast. All right, where have we seen images made? Again, storyline of scripture, back in the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments era, right? Moses goes up, comes down. What's this golden calf sitting here? What in the world are you guys doing? Right? And so in a similar way, we have this beast, this, again, what would be a political and religious entity, uh, creating the image of the beast, and then what is, what's given to the image? This is strange. Breath. Breath. Now, I don't know about you, but as I initially read through some of that, all right, this is like we've gone, you know, on the, on the crazy train here, because this is just weird. Like, how, how does this have meaning? Old Testament, what was a familiar principle in the Old Testament was that if you worshipped idols, you would become deaf and dumb like the idols. You become what you worship, right? That's an Old Testament principle. So Psalm 115 says, if you're going to bow down to little, you know, wooden idols or idols made of precious metal, you're going to become stupid like them. Your eye, you, you will lose discernment. You will not be able to hear what truth is. You'll, 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 you'll be vacant within, so to speak. You'll, you'll be emotionally absent in some sense. You're, you're going to become like the idol that you're worshiping. The idol, or the image of the beast that's represented here, takes on life. Representing the fact that idolatrous worship in this moment will have a payoff like it's never had before. We all know that our idols give us a level of payoff, don't they? Right. They always leave us face in the gutter after the fact, but they give us a level of payoff in the moment. 
whether that's escape or you know, what, whatever list of things that our hearts so desperately desires. We gain it from the idols that we go after, but ultimately it leaves us like, oh, that was stupid. Here, there seems to be a longevity, something of a payoff, something of a practical payoff, that this beast is alive, it has breath, so if I worship it, I become like it. There's something of power, there's something of life now in the worship of the beast that is given back to me. I don't become deaf and dumb. I am actually given something of life because the beast has life. Do you see the dynamic here? So it's this practical way of saying idolatry during this time will have incredible payoff. It will seem practical. It will seem right. It will seem, hey, this is the way you should live your life. It's going to have a payoff. Go for it. Go for it. Soft, cuddly, not threatening, right? Speaks with wisdom, power, authority, right? And also then has this wonderful payoff. Go after the things you want because it's going to sustain you. It's going to give you this sense of life like never before. All of this for the purpose of deception and seduction. So these become the two tactics, in fact, what scripture and many scholars will refer to the first beast as the Antichrist of 1 John, for instance. He's the Antichrist figure, while the, the soft and cuddly lamb, dragon concept will later be referred to as the false prophet. He's a deceiver. Uh, while on one hand, the Antichrist, he's just against, you, against Christ and overt in his way, uh, it is the false prophet who's deceptive, um, who comes kind of cloaked and covertly to deceive and to seduce. But ultimately, who is he serving according to the text? The dragon and indirectly this other beast. If you're not going to worship, eventually he's saying, if you're not going to worship this beast, you will be slain. So he's working from a place of deception and seduction, ultimately to kill the Christian, the one who follows Christ. Do you get the dynamics at play here? You know, and, and, and we aren't supposed to like, necessarily see these hard and fast. These are general principles that will be, again, patterns happening throughout the church age, perhaps coming to a point of where these, there will be particular powers before the return of Christ uh, that will be functioning in this way quite overtly. But nonetheless, they're patterns. Do we see these patterns at work within our own day? All right, throughout the world, is there oppression and persecution taking place? Yes. And, and some folks will say, you know, it's, it's not that bad. You know, it seems as though this is going to be a global reality. And the fact of the matter is, in some ways, yes, it, it is a global reality. Persecution is happening all throughout the globe. But what this picture also gives us is that globally, there's going to also be deception and seduction taking place. Now, I don't know about you, but our Western world is probably not living on this side of the map. It's living on this side of the map. But this day is coming. Do you feel it? The agendas that are at work within our culture even right now. I feel for our children. I feel for our kids. Um, as we were on vacation, there was a number of things, whether I was reading or studying, that it was just 
like the Lord was saying, give attention to the kids. They will go through an ever-intensification of these things. In a generation where we've kind of seen it come more vividly, they're going to go through a more difficult time. It's not going to get easier. Scripture doesn't show us that. Things are going to an ever-intensifying place. It's a polarizing effect that takes place over time. It's more rigid. It's going to be more intensified over time. And our kids will have to endure things that are much more difficult than what we've endured. And that means for us two particular things. There are two calls or two ways, secondly, um, that the church is to faithfully endure. So if you noticed, I skipped over um, these particular points. Notice at the end of the first section of chapter 13, the, the church, the church is called to endure. Remember, those who do not worship the beast, right, whose, whose name is written in the book of life before the foundation of the world, those whose names were written in the book of life of the lamb, they are slain. And then the word goes, hey, if you got ears to hear, hear this. If you're going to have to be taken captive, you're going to be taken captive. If you have to be killed by the sword, you're going to be killed by the sword. This is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. <laughs> Great. What is he saying? To follow Jesus, it may mean death for you. It may mean death for you. That will be a reality for many. They will die. But notice, notice it's all those who have been written in the book of life. This is why as a church, uh, I, I tell folks I hate funerals, but I love doing funerals because you get to speak into this kind of life. It is not death for a Christian to die. Why? Because before the foundation of the world, and I don't know what your doctrine on election is, but this is the way it's to operate. This is the way it's to give you something of enduring faith. It's to say that before the foundation of the world, God set his eye on you, chose you in Christ, and worked circumstances providentially and sovereignly to give you a life that through death you might have in Christ. Election, you know, this talk about before the foundation of the world, is not to create division in the church. Are you Arminian or are you Calvinist? Ugh, can't stand it. It's to comfort your hearts when you stand in the face of death. I can know, hey, I don't know, there's mystery to the sovereignty of God. My, his ways are higher than mine. So I don't understand it all, but what he promises me is he knew me before the foundation of the world. He knew that all these circumstances would happen, and he made it so that through Christ I would have life that would endure even through death. The book of life is not just like, oh, you, you get life when you get to heaven. The book of life is, is the account of all those who have the life of Christ in them. You got it now. In other words, as you faith, face death, live from this place of life. The life that is yours in Christ. There's a whole bunch of like urgency that are just like, 
pastorally, don't just go through this, wake up in the morning and, oh man, here's my day. You know, it's this exhaustion. Here's all this stuff I gotta do and get through. And I'm carrying all these burdens from the past. It's hard. Look, some of that is gonna be a real reality for us. But if your name is written in the book of life, you have the right, if you will, to get out of bed, and no matter what you feel in the moment, no matter what your circumstances are saying in the moment for the difficulties that stand before you in the, in the day that you're about to jump in, you have resurrection life. Your day may involve death. But he's saying, you got life. So know that in every challenge, at every turn, expected or not expected, as difficulty may come towards you, you have resurrection life. God is not just with you, he's in you, and therefore you should wake up in the morning saying, God, this is what I get to do with you, for you, by your resurrection life. Yeah, things may just completely fall apart in my day, but you're going to have something good in there. Even if it leads to death, you're going to have something good in death. I live not by my circumstances, I live by the life that is in me, Christ's resurrection life. Do you know this? You have it in you. You have it in you. We oftentimes just forget it. Wake up in the morning. Life is defined by circumstance, not by the life of Christ. This is how the church is called to endure. Live by the life that is yours in Christ, even if it means death. We didn't get to the other, uh, at the end of the second beast, right? Not only are we to live according to the life that we have in Christ, but we're to live according to the wisdom of Christ. So at the, at the end, we got to get there. Crazy, crazy stuff here. Six, six, six. All right. This does not refer to chips in your hand and in your forehead. It does not refer to vaccines, that's more of the, like, even this past week, you're hearing more of this stuff, like, the mark of the beast is not that stuff. It's just, don't go there. What, just so you know, what that is, is taking your newspaper tabloids and imposing it on the text. That's a bad way to do exegesis. That's a bad way to interpret scripture. You can't do that. You can't take modern day events and just put them into the text. You have to ask the text first, according to scripture, how would scripture interpret scripture? It's what it's meant to do. We're not to interpret scripture with tabloids. We're to interpret it with scripture. And so the question begins to be, okay, what is this mark of the beast? It's a call. It's to be like, hey, here's this 6-6 six, six thing. This is a call to wisdom. Right? That's what he, he actually says in verse 18. This calls for wisdom. The church is called. It's called to endurance and faith and the saints living according to the life that is in Christ. And now he's saying you need discernment in a time of deception. And he actually uses this as an example. And he says calculate it because it refers to someone. All right, so we're not going to tabloids. We're to calculate something because it refers to someone. All right? And... Hebrew, right? In Hebrew, their letter system, alphabet, is actually a number system as well. There's amounts, uh, 
values assigned to each one of their letters. And so even archaeologists more recently have actually found some pretty funny, uh, more or less like ancient graffiti, like stuff marked into the walls of a city. Uh, one which says, I love the girl whose name amounts to da-da-da-da-da. Right? And what, what they did is they took the letters of the girl's name in Hebrew and just took the values of them and added it together. Right? So in a similar way, again, we have to calculate something and it refers to something. You take the name, again, this is not numerology, we're not going like crazy, this is actually a, with, within the guardrail of like, hey, this is sane. <laughs> Right? This is a practice that actually happened in the ancient Near East. Is you, you take the value of Nero Caesar and it amounts to 666. Or you take the value of the letters beast and it amounts to 666. Um, so most likely, again, it's, it's referring to an entity like this. Again, that will develop patterns, intensifying patterns over time until Christ uh, returns. So, don't get all whacked out about the 666, right? And it's to be on the hand and head. Um, that's not strange stuff either. Go back to Deuteronomy 6. The, the Shema was to be worn on the hand and the head. It's a sign of allegiance, right? The Shema, the Shema was like the, the original kind of statement of faith for God's people. The Lord our God is one. You know, it's this statement of faith that they literally, some of the religious folks actually had these boxes that they would tie to their head as a headband and actually have the Shema in it, right? Or on the hand. And again, it was just a sign of allegiance. I follow Yahweh. What's happening here with this 666 on the hand and on the forehead isn't that there's chips put in, but, but there is an allegiance being made. It's symbolic. Don't make it literal before you make it symbolic, right? It's, it's, it's symbolism. And it's to say that these individuals who are taking the mark on their hand and their forehead are, are just, they're, they're, they're aligning themselves with the counterfeit trinity, right? They're aligning themselves with that which opposes Jesus, either through direct opposition or through deception. They're aligning themselves with the enemy, no matter how cuddly and non-threatening it may seem. It requires, in other words, the, the idea here of bringing up, hey, this demands wisdom and discernment and, hey, calculate these things. Really, it's, it, it's saying Christians need to operate in this life with discernment. I'm just going to throw a line out. You can send me an email later this week if you feel like it's off. I know for many in our church, uh, and this is a good thing, I think, uh, there's secular therapies and counseling that many of you attend. And that's a good thing. There's common grace to be found there. But also know that that counsel and that therapy does not necessarily come in the worldview or in a context that would define it according to biblical terms or according to Christ. So for those who are partaking of that common grace, the secular therapy, counsel, you need to do some discernment. In, in, in other words, receive something of the good of common grace, you know, eat it but spit out the bones. But the only way you know how to spit out the bones is to see what aligns with Jesus, what aligns with the truth of his word. And even the things that you ingest, you take in and you practice in your life, you better be careful to align it with Christ. 
He is the creator of the ends of the earth. All truth, all that is true, all that is profitable, all that is right is ultimately his and must be aligned with him. It's the enemy who comes with deception saying, oh yeah, I got a lot of good things, a lot of practical things. This is going to prove, oh, it's the breath, right? The breath and the image. Oh, this is going to be good for me to take in. It'll give me something that I need to kind of heal me of the brokenness. It'll seem practical. But you have to be discerning. You got to know your Bible, and this is why uh, I, I'm, I'm scared for the church in the West, is because we have a lot of good self-help stuff happening, but what we're also watching is that an understanding of Scripture and an appetite for Scripture is beginning to wane, which tells me we're living in kind of a mosh pit of deception. It doesn't mean your therapist is wrong. But if you're not doing the work to see what that, how that stuff aligns with the truth of Jesus so that what is all from him goes back to him, then you're being deceived. All right, so we have to be careful. Get to know your Bible. Send us questions. Let's talk about it. And I don't know what's happening in your counseling sessions. And as a pastor who has to give an account for your soul one day, that's scary to me. I don't know who's talking to you. I don't know if it's that cuddly little wonderful lamb, seems so innocent, but he's spitting false junk your way that seems to help you, but is actually slowly drifting you away from what is true. Okay, we just have to be discerning. On, on this end, gotta live according to the life of Christ, the life that's in us, that resurrection. On this end, gotta be a people of wisdom got to know our Bible. we got to know what is true so we can discern truth from error in a world of deception. Any thoughts from your end? Amen. Amen. Yes. Anything else? Uh, this is, we're we're going to talk about. No matter how relevant this is or what they're trying, I just feel like a lot of what you're saying is really, really good from the standpoint of education and all this kind of thing. I think Americans, we think too much of ourselves. And we, I hear so many He's the Antichrist. So blindly, you know, we're, we're just not that important. And I think in the world yep. stage, as far as scripture is concerned, I think we're really irrelevant. Yeah. You know, so this is like, I think we just need to stop interpreting stuff that happens here. Yeah. And thinking that that's significant. I think we just need to look at it. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
and, and the language of Revelation 13 is that this is global and, and in varying degrees throughout the globe. Uh, it, it, what is global is the authority and the, the, these schemes are at work in different ways, in different degrees throughout the globe. It's not that the U.S. Like, is the new Jerusalem and uh, everything surrounds us. No, it, it's, that's bad theology. Yep. Good. Anything else? Yeah, so I grew up with that. Yeah. I'm not teaching you that. Right. Okay. <laughs> and and that I'm not saying that rapture theology is like absolutely bad. Um, I think I think it's more informed by movies and books than it is by God's word because when you study it according to God's word, it's actually a hard a hard position to defend. Um, so, and and it it's like I'm. People who are way smarter than me like take that position, and so I got to caveat it there. Uh, but it, it's like you, you see these things happening, and and to just think, oh, that's a future thing, and uh, you know, whoever the faithful are, you know, in the tribulation, having to go through that, it's a faithful, and 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 so I, I think it's a bad thing for the church now to think that this is all future. And just kind of stand, oh, man, they're going to go through it one day, and we'll just kind of wait for Jesus to come back and save us from all that craziness. That's the application. Come, Lord Jesus, right, before all that stuff has to happen. And I think we have to own what's happening here as the church and apply it to our day, not missing the fact that it may intensify in greater, greater measure. And, yeah, there may be a singular antichrist in some shape or form uh, that eventually comes, maybe some particular man of lawlessness or false prophet that... That, that comes in some shape or form in the future. Uh, but these things, as First John says, you know, everyone's like, oh, is the Antichrist already here? And John says, actually, the spirit of Christ, uh, actually, the Antichrist already has come. The spirit of the Antichrist is with us. So it's not like, oh, there's, there's a singular person and a singular event that will one day happen. There's patterns of these things happening here and now in intensifying degree until Christ. Returns. Um, I think the ethics yeah. working in a particular time. Yeah. I often feel that a prophet like would get them because like Jesus is himself, like time conquers himself, and that's actually helpful. But um, so what? What also should I not be lying to people? Yeah. Well, I I think you. I mean, you say you said it. It's like, um, yeah, we, we are that self-actualization that if I can, you know, if I can just order myself and know myself enough, then I'll be good. Um, that's, we do need to know ourselves, but the best way we come to know ourselves is through the one who created us. We are, we are an image bearer. So I get to know my worth and who I am and the value of my life according to one who's given it. Um, so I know that, but you're gonna find that this is gonna like, oh, well, I'm canceling this therapist or I'm gonna lose my job because I'm pointing to something else other than the self to give me my true identity and substance in life. Um, so that's the rub, I, like, there's no easy answer. If you're gonna go be a captive, you're gonna go into captivity. If you're gonna be killed by, you're gonna be killed by the sword. Like, there's going to be a fallout here. And so as, as the text would say, 
like, this is, it's a call to live according to the resurrection life that is yours. Like, I think you will know better than I would even some of the conversations and difficulties in the workplace that you'll, you'll have to have. And, and as you have those conversations, like, it's to lean on the life that's in Christ. Like, all right, Christ, I'm, I'm, I may suffer, you know, through this for you. Uh, so give me the strength to, to endure through these things. Um, but there's probably broader conversations to how to go tactfully about having those conversations. But that's the, that's the real stuff, which is great to, to raise. It's a bad an- answer. It doesn't solve anything for you. <laughs> anything else? There is a final way that I just want to end. All right, good. I appreciate the feedback. And that, by the way, I like to have these kind of moments rather than just kind of preachy time is helpful for me to know what kind of is being grasped and understood and where you guys are at. And so that's part of the benefit in doing it this way. So not every Sunday we'll do it this way, but it, it's helpful uh, while we have it. All right, music team, you guys want to swing up here? Uh, as they swing up here, here's what I want to do. I just want to close um, uh, praying for our kids. <sighs> the next generation who will have to go through this. One of the words um, kind of that was given um, this, uh, this past week and one of, one of the things that I've um, been watching and just kind of feeding my soul with um, was a unique word about the next generation, that the next generation is going to go through some unique things. Uh, but for us as parents, don't pity your kids for what they will have to go through. Don't pity your children, right? We don't sit back and say, oh, man, woe is them. We're not driven by fear, although we need to do the work to point them to Jesus, the resurrection life that can be theirs to lead them through. They will glorify God uniquely in their time and through their generation. And so we need to pray for them. We need to train them up. We need to get the kids' ministry rolling. Right? We need that stuff. They need that stuff. We need to prepare them for the intensification uh, of the culture. And not just out of fear, but out of the fact that this is how the slain lamb is glorified. He's going to be glorified through the intensification of these circumstances and through a faithful remnant that walks through them even unto death. This may sound stupid and weird, but if my kids die for the sake of Christ, that is victory. Like, yes. As a father, I'd, ha- I'd hate it, but what it would mean is victory. It's a victory. That is not a loss. This is a victory. That my kids would be faithful unto Christ even unto death. Bring on this stupid cancel culture, whatever else. You know, um, we're going to have to work through all that. That already is in play, that we have to work through that. Um, Our kids will have to work through that in the school systems. Um, No one is to be discriminated, right? We don't discriminate. I don't care what kind of lifestyle you're coming from. The church is not to discriminate in that kind of sense. We're not to give lesser love. All are to receive our love, but one of the ways we will have to love as a church, as God's people, is to call people to repentance from the very things that our world says, oh no, it's justice for us to support them. And we have to say, we will support you in every way we can, but 
we have to love you by calling you to repentance. So to make it plain, the LGBTQ community, we should love them. We should love them. We should in some sense, in, in some ways, even support them. We should not discriminate, have lesser love for them. No, we should love them. But our love must involve, in some way, calling them to repentance. That's love. As we would call anyone who's, who's away from the Lord, to, to repentance. It's how we love. And we will be canceled, and we will be screamed at. We will... Uh, we will feel the beast in those moments. We will feel the rage in those moments. It doesn't make us any righteous than anyone else to proclaim repentance in love to them. It doesn't make us more righteous or anything. But it's how God has called us to love. And there's going to be tension and difficulty. And our children will face that in unique ways. And if they're going to be faithful to Christ, they have to love others by calling them to repentance so that those who are broken and empty, so that those who have chosen various lifestyles to live their life, because that's what's fulfilling to them, it's not ultimately fulfilling. Christ is fulfilling. And so it will be a difficult thing for our children. It'll be a difficult thing for us. Um, so let's end just praying for our kids, and then we'll finish with a uh, final song. God, we thank you for uh, the truth of your word. As strange as the book of Revelation is, thank you for how relevant it is uh, and God, thank you for how scripture interprets scripture, that we can see that these entities are at work within our life. Thank you for showing us the war table uh, of, of the enemy, showing us just what his tactics will be in some measure. And, and God, thank you for the life that you've given us in Christ to endure. Thank you for wisdom. Jesus, you are our wisdom, as your word says. You are our wisdom. You will grant us wisdom to discern what is right from that which is wrong. Uh, but even here now, while we thank you for your word, we pray for our children. We pray, God, that you would grant them something of a unique grace of early faith in you and also then something of discern unique discernment. God, grant them unique discernment to see what is right from that which is wrong, to see that which is truth from that which is the enemy's lie, to see that which comes from your voice versus that which comes from the dragon's voice. Lord, we pray that you would grant them discernment, even in their young age, that we would be actually surprised that they would maybe watch a movie and come away saying, no, this was right and this was wrong. They, they would see it for what it is by your spirit. So grant them discernment. But, oh God, as the book of Acts would talk about, um, God, we also pray that you would grant them unique boldness. Boldness to love and to love well, not to discriminate, not to become some kind of Christian nationalist, not to just kind of wave an American flag for the sake of waving an American flag, but they would be those who stand upon your truth, those who are discerning in, in, in what they engage with, but then those who boldly share your love with others. God, grant them boldness, and Lord, grant then the parents even something of, of um, yeah, ease and peace when it comes to the unique persecutions that our children uh, may endure. So God, give us peace. Help, help us to see the victory uh, that, that is in seeing our children. If it's to captivity, then they, to captivity they must go. If it's by the sword, by the sword they must go. And so, Lord, let it be from even a parent's perspective that we would, we would see victory for what it is 
in our children being discerning, but also being bold to call others to repentance and follow after Jesus. So God grant, may it, may it be that Mercy Gate establishes kind of a, a, a solid basis from which our children might go forth uh, into this world and do great good for the sake of your name. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
folks, again, said before, if you guys have questions, follow-up, discussion about this thing, please let us know. We want to we strengthen and encourage you, so don't leave questions unanswered. Um, but Paul writes to the Romans as they were in the middle of enduring that oppression. He says, watch out for those who cause divisions, for those who create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid those things. Those persons do not serve our Lord Christ. They serve their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the enemy. But the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. 